You're listening to Doctrine, a series where we examine the fundamental elements of the Christian faith, which are necessary for every Christian to know and understand. It's being taught to you by Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County. If you have your Bibles ready, let's begin. Genesis chapter 3 is where we're at. We're looking at the fall of men, where we'll ask and answer the question, uh, where did sin come from? A basic description or definition of sin uh, would be, uh, you know, it's described in the Bible as a transgression against the law of God or rebellion against God. And uh, I'm sure every single one of us has seen the effects and the consequences of sin. You know, it's, they're grieving, they're devastating. What sin does to our family, to our loved ones, to our body, to our you know, community, to our nation, to the world. Uh, you know, you think of the abuse uh, that wives or children go through or the rape or the molesting or, you know, moms and dads leaving their kids, the divorce, cheating, diseases that come from cheating, all that stuff. It's all a result of sin. And as we've been studying creation the last two weeks and man being made in God's image. We've studied that when, when God was done creating man, he saw that man was very good. Creation was very good. You know, the Hebrews have the word shalom, which could be a word to describe creation at its best. And shalom speaks of wholeness and perfection or everything just right, everything as it should be. Shalom speaks of beauty and honor and love and reconciliation. There's no war. There's no famine. There's no disease, no tears, uh, no suffering, no loss or mourning. There's no funerals. There's no need for locks. There's no need for police. There's no need for soldiers. Uh, there's just no need for those things. So everything that is not shalom is sin. Uh, it's, they're, they're exact exact opposite. So, um, you know, sin is vandalizing shalom. It's attacking and making war on shalom. And, uh, and so Jesus comes as the prince of peace or the prince of that uh, shalom. Now, uh, sin shows up in our lives as tons of different things, you know, uh, suffering, injustice, boredom, annoyances, miseries, fear, Sorrow, illness, pain, grief, despair, uh, being annoyed, you know, uh, uh, and uh, tragedies, death. These are just some ways that sin shows up in our life. Um, the Bible has a lot of images that it uses to talk about sin. Rebellion, folly, uh, self-abuse, madness, lust, hatred, Wandering from the truth, irrationality, blindness, deafness, a hard heart, pride, selfishness, stiff neck, shrugging of the shoulders, delusion, treason, unreasonableness, self-worship, missing the mark, wandering from the path, spiritual adultery, and idolatry. So uh, lots of different pictures and images that are used in the scripture to talk about Sin. So while a good definition of sin would be, um, you know, transgressing the law of God or, you know, 
uh, rebelling against God. There's some, you know, there's a, a broader definition of sin as well. Um, you know, when we talk about Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, it doesn't mean anything if we don't know what sin is, you know. And so we're going to just get in, in deep tonight what sin is. Um, there's sins of omission, which is basically not doing what you're supposed to do. And uh, many, many, many of us tonight, maybe we're practicing sins of omission. We're not doing what God has commanded us to do or what God's designed us to do. And then there's sins of commission or committing sins. It's doing what you're not supposed to do, okay? So sins of omission, not doing what you're supposed to do. Sins of commission, uh, uh, doing what you're not supposed to do. Um, sins can, you know, count as thoughts, words, deeds, our motives. There's lots of different, you know, uh, things that count as sin. Uh, sin is godlessness, which is ignoring God. And it's also idolatry, which is, you know, giving yourself to something other than Jesus or exchanging Jesus for something else. That's idolatry. You know, if you're not giving yourself to Jesus, number one in your life, he is your priority. You're sinning and idolatry, you know, or if you've chucked Jesus to the side and, and taken something else, uh, that is idolatry. Um, sin can be crimes, uh, but it also can be non-crimes. You know, the police aren't going to arrest you for covetousness or lust, or adultery, um, but uh, it's a different thing if you go out and steal that car you're coveting, you know, or uh, murder the husband of the wife that you're lusting after, some, you know, uh, those things, you know, you get arrested for, but, you know, you, it's crimes and non-crimes. Sin fits into those categories, um, but it is breaking the law. Uh, sin is breaking God's law, his moral law, or the law of Moses. Uh, it's breaking human laws. We're told in Romans 13, uh, in one of many places, to obey the laws of the land and submit to the governing authorities in our life. Uh, sin can also be breaking the laws of authority in your life. If you go to school and you're always mouthing off to your history teacher or your whatever, one of your teachers, uh, you know, that's an authority in your life. And we know from Ephesians that, you know, we're to submit to the authorities in our life. But that also can be uh, not submitting to the church authority over you or your, your church leadership authority over you, um, your pastor, whatever. It's, it's breaking laws, whether it's God's, man's, uh, or, or the other authorities. So um, sin can also be, you know, Sinning against your conscience. Romans chapter 2 talks about that, you know. Um, even the people that aren't Jews or the people that are, you know, living in the jungle somewhere out in the middle of nowhere and they die and they maybe never held a Bible in their hand, they're going to be judged according to their conscience. We have the law of God written in our heart. And uh, so, you know, also 1 Corinthians tells us that whatever that is not done out of faith is sin. So sin can be sinning against our conscience. He who knows what is right and does not do it, to him it is sin, uh, the scriptures tell us. Uh, sin is perversion, or which speaks of uh, crooked, to deviate from the straight path. Um, perversion basically means to take a good thing and to use it or to turn it into sin, to use it as sin. 
Uh, technology is an example of this. You know, we can text and tell mom, you know, we're going to be home and we're going to get the milk. And that's good, good way to use technology. But if we're gossiping about somebody, you know, or, or sending bad pictures over our text phone or whatever, you know, uh, then that's, that's bad. That's perversion of a good thing. Um, there's a lot of examples of the way we pervert uh, um, good things, whatever it is, relationships or, you know. Uh, so sin is perverting something. You know, sex is an example of that. God created sex within the marriage environment, the marriage relationship. And if sex is outside of that, it's perversion. And hence the word we use it, perverted. It's outside. You know, there's a good thing that, that we've twisted and made sick and perverted. Um, sin is also pollution, which is taking something that is good and adding something that is evil um, to make it impure. And uh, there's, there's lots of things that, that fit into that category. You could probably think of some, uh, you know, even just touch, you know, touch is a good thing and it's one way to show love, but, you know, it can also be used in a bad way for many different, in many different ways there. So sin can also be turning a good thing into a God, like your career or your family or your role as a mom or something like that. It's a good thing. These are all good things. But if we start sacrificing for those good things, if we start choosing to, uh, you know, to put all our money towards those things or all of our energies or all of our time towards those things. Those are good things, but now they become a God in your life. And man, men, haven't we just been studying that a lot since the men's retreat? Um, but, you know, we can turn a good thing into a God, whether it's comfort, home, relationships, whatever it, it might be. Um, sin uh, can be establishing anything else in your life as your identity other than Jesus, um, and our identity needs to be in Christ. Um, one question that's out there is, is all sin equal? Are all sins equal? Well, in one regard, it is. In one regard, all sin is equal. You know, James chapter 2 verse 10 says that if, if you keep the whole law, but you stumble in one point of it, then you've broken the whole law. Okay, so that one little lie has just made you, you're guilty of it all. You're guilty of murder, you're guilty of adultery, you're, you're guilty of it all by breaking one point of the law. I don't think that's ever been a problem for somebody. It's just a, a point that James uses to show us our guilt. Um, Matthew chapter 5 shows us that lusting after a woman is the same as committing adultery in our heart. So in that respect, you know, it, it's equal there. Uh, James chapter 3, you know, says that um, don't let many of you uh, be teachers. You'll receive the, the stricter judgment. Um, so that just shows that, you know, there's, there's, there's similarities in, in the, uh, F, the uh, what was it, the, um, the equality of sin. But then the way to put it would be uh, not all sin is equally devastating by their effects. And that's just one way that we see, uh, you know, throughout Scripture we see that uh, Judas committed the greater sin than Pontius Pilate. Jesus says, you know, uh, there's a lot of verses, just a whole list of, you know, greater abominations in the scripture. So sins that are more devastating in their effects uh, and sins that you can, you can see in the word that God is hotly displeased against. For instance, uh, sinning against children or causing children to stumble, Jesus says, it's better for you to what? 
have a millstone tied around your neck and to be thrown into the sea. You know, uh, you, you see God's wrath burning against uh, certain sins that are abominations before him. So degrees of devastation of sin. But as we get into this, look at how sin came to us. Um, we're looking here at Genesis chapter 3, and I don't think anyone can fully comprehend Genesis chapter Three. And so if you're here tonight and you're like, I've read Genesis, Genesis 3 a million times. I know the story of the fall. Man, we don't know it. We don't know it. You know, this is major. This is major. This, this, is, the, this is the breaking of the compass. This is the, you know, deviation from all truth. This is what has caused the plagues and the murders and the rapes and the miscarriages and the abortions and the uh, you know, everything horrible you can think of has its roots here in Genesis chapter 3 for man. So, but actually, before we get into chapter 3, we're going to look at chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So having that background, we can now go into chapter 3 and uh, verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? So here's this serpent, okay? He's more cunning than any other beast of the field, or he's more crafty in a bad way. You know, Russell's children's Bible entitles the chapter, The Sneaky Snake. You know, that's exactly what is happening here. There's this sneaky, crafty, in a bad way snake here. And, and uh, we know from Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, that the snake is, and, and let me just read it to you, so the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. And, uh, and, and so basically the serpent of old is the devil. He's Satan. He's the dragon of revelation. Uh, devil and Satan means uh, accuser, slanderer, and deceiver. Okay, so that's exactly, this sneaky snake is an accuser, he's an a slanderer, uh, he's a deceiver. It's important to know that the snake is the devil and that he's more crafty and cunning than any beast of the field. Man, oftentimes we underestimate the devil. We think that we're pretty strong or we're pretty clever, but he's been around for a long time. He know he has a lot of tricks up his sleeve, the wiles of the devil, we're told in the New Testament. You know, he, he's tricky. He's tricky, he's sneaky, he's cunning. And we all know ways that we've fallen into sin that, that man, oh, you got me, you know? <laughs> oh man, I, I was totally tricked. I was totally deceived and I chose to sin. Uh, even though, I, man, I, I hate that I did that. Um, you know, he's crafty, he's clever, he's smarter than you, smarter than me. He's seen more and he's destroyed more men who were smarter than you as well. So here's this snake, this crafty, sneaky snake, and he's the devil. He's, he's Satan. And so real quick, we just want to look at how did this sneaky snake end up in the, this perfect creation, this creation that it was good is how God deemed it. How did the sneaky snake, the devil, the slanderer, how did he get there and how was he already bad? Well, we want to look at Isaiah chapter 14, uh, verses 12 through 17. 
we see that sin had its very beginning with Lucifer, had its beginning with men in Genesis chapter 3 with Adam and Eve, but uh, the very root of sin, it came from Lucifer or Satan as he was given the name later. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12 through 17, how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you've said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest side of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. And so we see this pride in Lucifer. We know he was an angel. Uh, we know from other passages, and we'll read in Ezekiel 28, you know, he was probably the worshiper in heaven as we read about his timbrels and his pipes, you know. Uh, you know, some believe he was an archangel like Michael and Gabriel, uh, and, you know, this beautiful angel, you know, this son of the morning. But something happened in him where he got prideful and wanted to be God. He wanted to be worshipped as God. He wanted to exalt himself. Uh, he wanted to exalt his throne higher than God's. And so uh, that's we see this pride in him that led to his fall. But verse 15 says, but you'll be brought down to Sheol or hell to the lowest parts of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you and consider you saying, is this the man who made the earth tremble and who shook the kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities, who did not open the house of his prisoners? So he's going down. Jesus says that when he fell from heaven, he took a third of the angels with him. And, uh, but ultimately, as you read the end of Revelation, you know that, you know, he's going to just be cast into the lake of fire. He's going to be judged uh, and all those who took part with him. And, uh, and we're going to say, is this the guy that made the earth tremble those thousands of years and led all these men astray and caused all these murders? And now look at him. He's nothing. He has no power. And we'll see that he's down there and Yahweh, man, he's on his throne in glory. And then just flip over to Ezekiel 28. Verse 11 through 19, just another account of Lucifer's fall. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God. We have a dual fulfillment of of, uh, scripture here. You are the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You are in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardis, topaz and diamond, beryl, onyx and jasper, sapphire, turquoise and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You are the appointed cherub who covers. I established you. You are on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because, you saw, because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of splendor, your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. You defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your trading. Therefore, I brought fire from your midst. It devoured you, and I turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who knew you among the peoples 
are astonished at you. You've become a horror and shall be no more forever. So we just see this beautiful cherub, this beautiful angel, just uh, in this gorgeous throne in heaven, you know, uh, worshiping timbrels, pipes. Uh, but because of his sin, because he elevated himself uh, in pride, uh, he was cast down. So we don't really know when this fall happened. You know, some think it was between verses one and two uh, in Genesis. You know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then, uh, and then there's this, you know, the earth was worthless. It was void. It was just this black ball. And so we're not talking gap theory necessarily, but we're talking something in between there that, that caused this fall. So some people think that's when it is. We don't really know. Um, that's just one thought of when that may have happened. We know, you know, God created the heavens, God created Lucifer, and somewhere in that time, uh, Lucifer chose to do that. And so as we come back, that gives us just a little bit of a history in Genesis 3 of who the sneaky snake is, where he's come from, what he's been through um, as he was cast to the ground. Um, and, uh, and he says to the woman, uh, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. So this is something, you know, you might underline, has God indeed said? This is something that Satan will always try to get you to question. Did God really say that you shouldn't do this? Did God really say, is that really what he meant? Are you going to take that literally, you know, and, and he'll get you to question that as you're in the middle of temptation, if that's really what God said or how that verse should be interpreted or whatever, you know, gets us to doubt God's word. But then also notice he, he misquotes the word. And Satan will often do that. He'll try to use scripture to trick us, but he'll either misquote it or take it out of context, just like he did with Jesus when he was trying to tempt Jesus. All, everything he would use was taken out of context. And so he misquotes the word in that he says, did God really say you shouldn't eat of every tree of the garden or any tree of the garden? He changes one word from what Jesus or from what God said over there in, uh, in verse 17 uh, you know, he just says, you know, um, well, actually 16, 7, every tree of the garden you may freely eat. You can eat of, of every tree of the garden, except for one, except for the knowledge of good and evil tree. And so Satan takes it and twists it and said, did God really say you shouldn't eat of any tree or, or every tree? And, uh, and so, you know, Eve needs to, we need to take the Bible literally. If we don't take the scripture literally that, yes, that's what God said, then, you know, we're satanic, just like Satan tries to bring, bring out that, uh, you know, twisting of the word there. And so, you know, basically what he's saying is, uh, you know, did God, did God really say? So verses two and three, and the woman said to the servant, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the trees, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. So, you know, before Eve was even created, God was given this, or Adam was given this standard of not eating from the, 
tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So apparently he's communicated this to her since she's been, you know, taken from his side and been with him. She has an idea of it. And yet we see that she's a little bit weak in her knowledge of the word as well. You know, she's not purposely trying to twist the word, but she's weak in it. And how we can be the same way if we don't own the word, dig into the word, study to show ourselves approved, a workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth in every one of our lives and uh, in being able to give a defense of the scriptures as well. And, and she just kind of had this, I think it kind of went like this. And she kind of throws out how she remembered Adam, you know, telling her. And apparently she wasn't meditating on it all the time. But basically she even adds that uh, God said, you shall not eat, nor shall you touch it lest you die. That's not what God said in Genesis chapter two. He didn't say you couldn't touch it, which not that there's not wisdom in that, just no appearance of, or no, leave no provision for the flesh, you know, uh, that you would sin or get away from it. Don't touch it. But that's not what God said. And she added that there. Um, something we need to glean from Eve here is that, uh, you know, same thing as any time in our life, when someone comes into our life, especially women, uh, you gals who you're sensitive, you know, you want to p- give people the benefit of the doubt, uh, you know, uh, and in this case, uh, this person or this someone, Satan comes, he's divisive, he's gossipy, he's pressuring. Uh, and I think to all of us, there's just this don't engage, don't engage unless you own the word. And I would say, gals, don't engage unless your husband is there. But, you know, if it's another man, especially, uh, there's just wisdom in that. But, you know, she should not have engaged. She should have walked away, turned away, left the devil, resisted the devil, and he will flee, as we're told later in the New Testament. She should have turned away, you know, maybe rebuked the snake and said, you know, you're in sin. You need to repent. Get out of here and just, you know, run and flee, just like Joseph fled from Potiphar's wife. Um, but, uh, you know, she became confused. She was allowing these conflicting voices to come into, I'm not really sure how it went. And, and that just led to her, you know, falling into that temptation. Uh, you know, it's just an encouragement, you know, what, what do we have speaking into our lives? What kind of counsel do we have speaking into our lives? Is it biblical counsel? Is it biblical guidance? Or is it, you know, we're learning from Oprah Winfrey or we're learning from OPB, you know, or we're learning from, you know, what website are we going to get answers from? You know, are we getting it from a priestess of her own religion? And she says God every now and then, you know, and oh, she's so sweet and has presents underneath everyone's chairs, you know, oh, she's got to be awesome, you know, um, run, you know, go to the Bible, go to the word, go to men who are sound in biblical teaching. But verses four and five, then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So what is Satan saying? He's saying, God is wrong. You will not surely die. There will be pleasant consequences. You know, and and we're told in Hebrews that, you know, sin is just passing pleasures. There's passing pleasures in sin, you know, and and Satan is just, he's, he's tricking her. God's wrong. You're not going to die. There's pleasure in this. And he lists the pleasantness here, but he says that God's lying and God is withholding from you. And man, isn't that what the enemy tries to get us to believe? He's, he doesn't want you to have this pleasure. 
You know, oh, think of the pleasure you could have if you lived with this guy. You know, don't marry him because then you're bound to the guy. But how wonderful it would be to have someone to share coffee with in the morning or read that funny newspaper column to you or, you know, rub your feet after a hard day's work. And then you can snuggle up on the couch and just fall asleep. And, you know, just think of the pleasures. God, God doesn't want you to have those pleasures. You know, he's, he's saying that God is withholding. And if you believe that God is withholding, if that's what sin is, God withholding something from you, then you're going to sin to get it. And as you sin to get it, you know, you're going to have a distrust for God. And it's ultimately not going to fulfill that desire in your heart. And, uh, you know, you know, sin isn't uh, bad because God forbids it, you know, but God forbids it because it's bad for you. And he wants to protect you. He knows it's going to hurt you. He knows that, you know, you're, you're going to build your house upon the sand. Or he knows that it's going to end up in wrath or in disease or in, you know, uh, loss of your possessions or loss of your family, loss of respect, whatever. He knows that these things are going to end that way. And so he's, he's trying to protect us. You know, Satan also kind of wants Eve to think that she's wonderful and has great potential and God is just stifling her from obtaining these things. You know, that's, that's how he tricks. That's how he's cunning. That's how he's sneaky. He lies to us. This is all lies, all lies, if you wanted to say that. But, um, you know, first John chapter two, verse 16, hopefully you know it, hopefully you've had, you have it memorized. And if I started the sentence of the verse, you could repeat it for me. But, you know, we're told by John, for all that is in the world, the lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the father, but it's from the world. John tells us that thousands of years after Eve but this is the exact temptation that Eve was going through. She was lusting right now as the devil is providing this tasty treat to her. Oh, think of the lust of the flesh. It's going to be a delicious fruit and you're going to know wisdom. You know, uh, you know, lust of the flesh speaks of physical pleasure. Lust of the eyes is the appearance of, of that sin. And then the pride of life is all the pride. Oh, you're going to be like God. You're going to know good and evil. You know, you're going to be equal with God. Oh, yeah, I'm beautiful. I'm Eve. You know, I'm good. You know, pride of life right there. So, uh, you know, it's, it's not of the Father. It's of the world. It's of the devil. And so we see in verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and you can just, you can hear, John speaking here, lust of the flesh, lust of, lust of the eyes, pride of life. So she saw that the tree was good for food, pleasant to the ohos, if you will, eyes. You know, it's first John right here, chapter two. Uh, and it was desirable to make one wise. You might underline every one of those temptations there. <clears throat> she took of the fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. So, as we look at the fall, here's the fall, boom, you hear the thunder, you hear the lightning, you know, the dun, 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 you know, the room is shaking as we read it, you know, we, we want to ask as we look at the fall, where does sin originate from? Okay, so right here we can say, well, we know Satan sinned before this, now he's, you know, uh, possessing a snake, 
uh, and, and he's making the snake talk. So he, sin is coming from him, but where does it come from uh, in the heart of Eve or in Adam? Well, James chapter 1 verse 13 through 15, flip over there. This is one verse I'd like you to turn to. James is over towards the end of the book. Uh, Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, okay? <clears throat> James chapter 2, or excuse me, chapter 1, verse 13. We have the three steps of sin. Okay? So let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. Okay? For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he, and we're going to get into this in depth, but just here's the three steps. Each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin when it's full grown brings forth death. So we're going to look at James 1, 13 through 15, and we're going to, we're going to compare it with the fall in Genesis chapter 3. Now, real quick, before we get into those three steps, let's look at verse 13 there again. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. It's God's fault. First of all, God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Okay, so we know that sin didn't originate from God. Okay, sin didn't originate from God. Or it's, nor is it God tempting us when the temptation comes. But verse 14 tells us each one is tempted when he, number one, is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Okay, so when in the garden account do we see Eve or Adam being drawn away by their own desires and enticed? Well, Eve saw that the tree was good for food it was pleasant to the eyes and it was desirable to make one wise. So here's the, here's the enticement, okay? Her desire, she's drawn. This is the temptation. You know, we, we, do, we do dramas, you know, as evangelical outreach. And so often there's a guy that's running around, you know, poor, poor Adam. And then there's the seductress that just kind of does this little thing with her finger, you know? And that's exactly what sin is. Drawing people away from the Lord and enticing them by their own desires, Step two is James 1.15. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. You know, uh, so when did that happen in the garden account? Well, she took its fruit, you know, so desire is being conceived uh, and she ate it. And at that moment she sinned and then she, you know, she gave it to her husband with her and he ate. Okay. So sin has conceived now, uh, started out with desires of her heart, his heart, and then it gave birth to full blown sin started out in her heart. That's where it started out. Now, uh, it's interesting though. Have you ever taken a bite of a nice shiny apple and found a worm in it? you know, or, or found someone else was enjoying the apple with you, you know, and there's the classic old quote or joke, you know, what's worse than biting into an apple and finding a worm, biting into it and finding a half a worm, right? Well, it's interesting, you know, they've discovered that 
worms don't come from the outside of the apple. You know, I always thought, you know, a worm crawling up the tree and then kind of makes its way over and then goes inside. But what happens is these apple um, gnats or these apple flies, you know, they fly around and they land on a ripe apple and then they inject their eggs into the apple. And then the eggs basically fester, you know, inside the apple, grow up, start eating. And then when the apple falls to the ground, they crawl out. Uh, they have this special covering. They burrow into the ground, and the special covering helps them survive a cold winter. And then they are born, you know, and turn into flies uh, in the springtime. So, uh, in the same manner, you know, sin doesn't just—it's not on the outside of us, but it begins inside our heart when our, it's our desires, it's our wants that you know, you know, the temptation is outside of us, but our desire runs and grabs hold of that temptation. You know, I heard one guy say that, you know, it's like, uh, it's okay that the crows fly over your head, but it's bad when the crows land on your head and build their nest on your head, you know? It's like, there's the temptation out there. You know, you're not in sin when the temptations are out there. It's a temptation. Oh, I'm so tempted, I'm in sin. No, you're not in sin when you're tempted. Just don't let the temptation give birth. Don't let it land on your head, you know? Don't let it conceive in your heart and bring forth sin, Augustine says in in, uh, the Confessions of St. Augustine, sin comes when we take a perfectly natural desire or longing, think of whatever, you know, your struggle is or or ambition and try desperately to fulfill it without God, okay? Uh, Not only is it sin, it's a perverse distortion of the image of the creator in us. Remember, we looked at uh, the image of God last week. We're made in the image of God, but when we sin or because of our sin, we're like broken mirrors that can't reflect his image right. Uh, Our sin perverts and distorts God's image that we're trying to reflect. And then he goes on to say, all these good things and all our security are rightly found only and completely in him. So... um, And so that's, that's basically the, uh, step one and step two, and we'll get to step three in just a second of, of sin and what it leads to in James chapter one. But as we look also in Genesis, we see that verse six, she gave the apple or the fruit. I'm sorry, I don't want to say it's an apple. She also gave it to her husband with her and he ate. So where was Adam during this whole ordeal? with her. He was with her. Adam, when this was all going down, you know, he wasn't behaving as the spiritual leader, as the leader in the home. He wasn't protecting his family from temptation. Um, And we're going to see later on, he's the one that's held responsible for this sin. Very sobering thing, a very thing that awakens us as men to want to be responsible um, in our home. You know, as we look at Adam, we're looking at our father, And that he was with our mother and he did nothing about this. There's an old Puritan saying that was when Adam was away, Eve went astray. That's not the case here. Adam wasn't away. Adam was with Eve. And uh, and, uh, what was he doing? He was doing nothing. He, He didn't even speak up. He didn't even say anything. He wasn't even part of the, you know, the struggle. He wasn't even, oh yeah, he didn't say a word. 
He just, you know, he was just there like a lump on a log. And um, one of the worst things that men can do as the heads of their home is nothing. I think that leads, I think that is sin of omission. Uh, as, as men should be fighting against the enemy, fighting against temptation in their home. They think just because they're not cheating on their wife, they're not cheating on their taxes, they go to church two, three times a, a week, whatever, uh, that that's what, you know, I'm good, I'm golden, you know. But man, if you're not, you know, if you're not participating in the Great Commission, if you're not serving in the church, if you're not using your armor and the word of God to fight away the enemy, you know, and if you're not praying, you know, if you're just, you know, you're sinning, you're in sin. Sins of omission, they're just as bad as sins of commission, and uh, I like what Mark Driscoll said there. He said, if that's you, you're, you're a silent coward, if that describes you. And then he goes on to say, I would say you are worthless, but you bear the image of God. You know, so we studied that last week, you know, that, well, at least you do have some worth. You know, God didn't create us just to be the silent husband. He created us to be the bold, spiritual leader of our homes and in our churches and in our community, getting the gospel out to a dying, to a dying world. And so we see in verse six, you know, he was there. He didn't do anything. And then he even sinned. Verse seven, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves uh, covering. So, you know, interesting choice of covering, you know, little fig leaves, but uh, supposedly scientists have found uh, fig leaves that date, you know, thousands of years ago, and they're long, you know, they're like six feet long. So maybe they covered more than, you know, the cartoons or the paintings that we see. But, you know, we see it was foolishness of them to try to cover their sin, just sowing these fig leaves, thinking that that would cover, that maybe God wouldn't notice. Um, you know, and it's foolishness that they would hide from God. As verse 8, we see, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So we just see what they're going to be missing out on, this fellowship with God. They would walk in the cool of the day. Man, what an awesome time to just spend with the Lord when the sun is setting or when the sun is rising, just walking with the Lord. But, you know, foolish to think they could hide behind a tree, you know, hide from the creator of the universe by just kind of slipping behind a tree and slipping a fig leaf over the, you know, where the sun used to shine, I guess what you might say, I don't know. Um, verse nine, then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? So, you know, in, in Genesis chapter two, verse 25, we see that they were naked and they were not ashamed. Proverbs tells us 28, chapter 28, verse 13, that if you cover your sins, you won't prosper. But if you confess and forsake them, you'll have mercy. So just as foolishness as they're hiding, God comes walking, he calls out and who does he call to? Eve. No, who's he called to? Adam, where are you? Just like a, a concerned father here. Where are you? And who is he going to hold responsible? We'll read it in Romans 5 in just a minute. He holds Adam responsible. He calls for Adam and he, and he says, you know, where are you? Good question every one of us should ask ourselves. Where are you? 
You know, are you, you know, the silent husband? Are you the silent uh, pew sitter? Are you the silent man, you know, or are you actively uh, communing with me? Or are you hiding from God? And, uh, you know, where are you? And uh, verse 10, he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you uh, that you should not eat? So, you know, God is very direct. He's very to the point. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten? You know, bottom line, important things spoken out in truth and in love. And, you know, this is something I need to grow in, you know, uh, you know, just not beating around the bush, not, oh, I'm really ultra sensitive. You're going to leave the church if I ask you this simple little question about where you are or what you're involved in or whatever, you know, uh, you know, but just bottom line, hey, let's just be honest. Let's be real. Let's, let's speak here. Let's talk, speak the truth in love. And, uh, you know, I need to grow in that, but I think we all need to grow in that. Just being bold uh, with each other and, you know, obviously with love as the foundation there. But, you know, just God, to God, he just says, did you do what I told you not to do? And uh, verse 12, then the man said, the woman, the woman you gave, whom you gave to, to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. So the blame game begins here, okay? Um, Adam points to Eve, but really blames God. It's your fault for giving me this woman who led me into temptation, you know, and, and, you know, ultimately it was his fault, of course, but he blames God and then kind of like, well, if you don't want to take the blame, then at least let's blame it on Eve here. And, uh, you know, and, and the sad thing is, there's a lot of men use their wives as excuses. I know men that use their wives as excuses to not serve, to, to not use their gifts, which is neglecting the gifts, Paul tells us, or to not be in fellowship. Um, you know, they're afraid of their wives, and uh, of course, there needs to be prayer together and, and what service we should be a part of and that sort of thing. But man, uh, I just, I know the guys that just plain and simple use their wives as an excuse to not be um, involved or, you know, you know, I'm sure flat out sin. They blame it on their wife and that's just total cowardice um, right there. But, <clears throat> um, but then we see Adam points to Eve and points to God at the same time and then, uh, Verse uh, 13, the Lord God said to the woman, you know, everyone's held accountable here. What is this that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So Eve points to the serpent, although she probably could have been justified also. Obviously, she needed to take responsibility herself, but she probably could have been justified in uh, blaming her husband you know, this man whom you, whom side you took me from wasn't protecting me, wasn't stepping up as the head of the home, you know, wasn't uh, fighting off the enemy and beating away temptation. And, you know, as Ephesians tells us, so that he might present me as a pure spotless bride before the Lord at his coming when he walks in the cool of the garden, uh, in the cool of the day. He, him, you know, but, you know, she points, she could have been, you know, okay, even pointing at her husband, but she points to, uh, the serpent and said, you know, the serpent deceived me. He led me astray. In second Corinthians, Paul references this deception from the serpent 
to Eve. Uh, in 2 Corinthians eleven three, he says, Paul says, I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And how we make things so complicated in Jesus, you know, when it's so simple, the gospel is so simple and, and how we're, we're, we're led astray from the truth. And, you know, just like Eve was led away by Satan's craftiness. And then, uh, so she blamed the, the, Satan, the serpent who deceived me, and then she ate. Verse 14, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, you shall eat dust all the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So remember the third step in James chapter one, verse 15 is that in sin, when it is fully birthed, brings forth death. And so here we see the death beginning here. Um, you know, what is, what is Genesis chapter two, verse 17 says, if you eat of that tree in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So the consequence of sin uh, is death. And so we see the curse in verse 14, and we see death begin here. Um, Verse 15 is awesome. It's a prophecy of Jesus. It's the first prophecy of the Messiah in the scriptures that he's going to come. He's going to be the seed of the woman. That seed is singular, uh, not plural, but there's going to be one man that is born of woman who is going to crush Satan's head. And Satan will wound Jesus, uh, it'll bruise him, but in that bruising, Jesus is going to crush Satan. And Jesus crushed Satan there on the cross at Calvary, Calvary as he died on the cross for the sins of the whole world, the just for the unjust there. Um, so, you know, uh, it was one man said, Jesus will come as the dragon slayer. Uh, but Satan will harm him, but he will slay the dragon. That's exactly what's happening, uh, happened to the serpent through Jesus there. Uh, so that's the serpent's uh, curse. Verse 16, to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. Uh, in pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire, desire shall be for your children and he, sh- or for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So, uh, the, the curse for the woman here, you know, this explains miscarriages. It explains the great pain and labor. I actually have a friend in Corvallis. I'd never heard of this until my friend Olivia went through it uh, just this last year. She had a painless childbirth, no medication, uh, any, nothing, just had a baby and uh, no pain. And so just, oh man, reminds me back of the, you know, brings us back to paradise for her anyways. <laughs> Makes everybody else mad, I'm sure. But uh, painless childbirth, that's just, you know, pain in childbirth is just a result of the curse. It's a result of sin. Even the pain of raising children, the, the commitment, the cost, the, you know, the sleepless nights, the worry, the toil, the, all of that stuff. It's all uh, part of the, the curse there. But then also another important part, man, you know, it's just gals, it's good for you to underline you know, we guys, we, we're challenged in things as well. But, uh, you know, your desire is going to be for your husband. And it, it's speaking of his authority, speaking of his position. But he's going to rule over you. And remember, with God, you know, it, it's not a matter of worth. 
You know, but it's a matter of order. And God has made the husband the head of the wife, just as Jesus is the head of the church. The husband's to love the wife, just like Jesus loves the church. And as the husband loves the wife and gives himself for her and, you know, just loves her and pampers her, and, you know, then she's going to, in turn, uh, respect him and submit to him. Uh, it's, it's a great order that God's created. It's a picture of Jesus in the church, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. But, um, but the, uh, the woman will not trust, work with, or follow the leadership of her husband. Uh, she won't submit or follow her husband's lead. But by, Ephesians chapter 5 tells us, but by the Spirit. You know, when a woman is saved and regenerate, she's full of the Spirit. She's able to submit the way that God desires the woman to submit, but in the same way, a husband can't lead the wife without being saved, born again, and being full of the spirit. And, and in actually even prefacing that, you know, Paul says, submit to one another in love, you know? So there's just this great order that's worked out there in Ephesians chapter five, but sin, uh, sin mars that order, sin destroys that. And there's been many of divorce Uh, because of that. Not just on the woman's case, but on the man's case, not loving her like Jesus loved the church. Um, Verse 17, uh, then to Adam, he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree, which I've commanded you saying, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake and toil. You shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles. It shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. From dust you are, and to dust you shall return. So uh, this curse, the curse is, of the earth is upon it now. Um, now the curse for Adam wasn't that he would work, uh, you know, because, you know, we're made in the image of God. God works. God, you know, is an artist. We can enjoy work. Have you ever had a day where you just enjoyed your work? You know, I've heard it said that if a man finds a job or an occupation that he loves, he'll never work a day in his life. You know, uh, you know, God's a worker. We're made in His image, but the curse was that the toil, the sweat, the uh, the thistles, you know, the hard ground, the you know, the things breaking down, the things, you know, the the bees, you know, attacking you as you're weed eating your yard, you know, all that stuff. You know, that's the result of the curse, but it's not the work itself. And uh, Romans chapter 8 verse 20 tells us that uh, creation was subjected to futility or corruption, uh, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. So we know from this curse that the whole world uh, is, is in corruption and is in decay and it groans for Jesus to come back, that uh, it could be put back to its pre-fall state. And, uh, and so, but even there in verse 19, we have that third part of James, James chapter one, verse 15, death. And we see Adam, you know, it's foretold that he's going to die. He was formed from the dust of the earth by the hand of God, and he's going to die, and he's going to decay, and he's going to turn into dust again. Verse 20, and Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and and, uh, his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and uh, clothed them. We also see death here in verse 21, death to the animals 
as uh, an animal had to die for the skins to, to cover the sin of Adam and Eve. It's just a picture of Jesus, how Jesus was going to die and, uh, and cover our sin, or the better word would be atone for our sin, remove our sin. And uh, then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword, which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So uh, we see just the wages of sin is death. Adam's going to die. The, you know, the earth, the things are dying. Uh, the animal had to die to cover his sin. He's going to have an eternal spiritual death. Uh, man will in Revelation 20, we read of that death with the wages of sin, Romans 3.23 or 6.23 is death. And, uh, and then we see the Lord, you know, saying, man, we've got to get him out of the garden. And why did he have to get him out of the garden? Because the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was there. And if he were to eat of it, or I'm sorry, the tree of life was there. The tree of life was there. And if he was going to eat of it, he would live forever in his sinful decaying state. Imagine Adam still living today uh, in his decaying old man, raunchy state. He'd be a pile of, you know, not even a pile of bones. Ah, you know, God, God kicked him out of the garden so that he wouldn't eat of that tree because they were really good at eating of trees that they shouldn't eat from. So he had to protect that tree. Um, and in his grace, it was his gift to kick us out of the garden so that we would die. We would die, but then we would be raised again. We would rise again uh, to new life and sinless life uh, and, and to a body that is uh, a new and awesome body. So it was God's grace to kick them out and to protect them with that flaming sword there. Um, so God's grace there. You know, James chapter four, verse one, you know, again, James tells us where sin comes from. If we can just step back a second or go back a little bit in our study. He says in James 4, 1, where do wars and fights come from among you? And he says, do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? So again, that's, that's where these wars and the fighting come from. It's, it's for pleasures, that, that desire within us, as James chapter 1 tells us. And then if you'll look at James 4, 7, he goes on to say, therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So the desires, the, you know, the desires that we want these things. And so that desire it, it is conceived and, and sin is birthed and sin leads to death all because of the desires of our heart and, and us not operating in self-control. And so how do we not sin. We resist the devil. As we resist the devil, he will flee. And we see Jesus doing that so well when he's tempted as he quotes scripture and he stands on the word of God. And we see the devil doing what? Fleeing and going away for a more opportune time. And so that's kind of like the preface here. We're going to look at some questions, some deep things as we look at sin. Number one question is, where does my sinful nature come from? So we know we're sinners, but where does this sinful nature that we've often heard about, where does it come from? 
Now, up to the fall, Adam was morally innocent. But when he sinned, he by nature became a sinner. And because through Adam comes every human being, he's the federal head or the representative of the human race. And as he's the representative or the federal head, like begets like. We're made in God's image, but we're also made in Adam's image. We have his gene pool in us, okay? Like begets like, dog begets dog, apple begets apple, sinner begets sinner. Every human uh, that comes from Adam is a sinner except for one, Christ. Okay, he's the son of God. Um, even Adam's son, we see Adam's son was a murderer as he killed his brother Abel. You know, one generation later, and we see full-blown murder happening, not long after the, the garden account. I don't know, it might have been, probably was. They, they lived a long time then. Um, and so what this is called, it's this passed-on depravity, okay? This passed-on sinful nature that's known as inherited sin. Write that in your notes. Inherited sin. Just as you're going to inherit that whopping 350 bucks you know, what? sorry, maybe you'll have more than that, uh, you know, as, from your parents or from whatever, you know, you also inherited something so great from Adam, that sinful nature, that depraved state. Um, King David wept in the uh, Psalms over this fallen human nature that he had. Uh, in Psalm 51.5, he said, surely I was sinful at birth. Oh, but babies are so, in- yeah. It's crazy, my little daughter, uh, almost 10 months old here, oh gosh, you know, uh, the apple of my eye, you know, just, I look at her and I melt every time I look at her. Those eyes, those eyelashes, holy cow, never thought a daughter could do that to, a, a, uh, to her dad. <sighs> Man, I know it now. But my computer, my laptop has the cord with that box thing, it's like a surge protector or something like that, you know, she will not leave that thing alone. Crawls over to it, grabbing a hold, chewing on her, you know. No, Laney, no, you know, like the tiniest little spanking you can give a baby, you know. And it's probably a little more than that. Weak, you know. Um, but, you know, oh, no, Laney, no, you know. And, and, or she'll just do things. And Lindsay's like, can you believe she just did that? I know. She's a sinner, <laughs> you know. Even my sweet little Laners, you know. Um, she was sinful at birth, just like David was, he wrote. And then he goes on to say, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. You know, <clears throat> sinful as that little baby in the womb. Psalm 58.3 says that the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go away as soon as they're born, speaking lies. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3 says, you know, we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind. And then it says this, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the others. Our nature, we're children of wrath, okay? And Romans 3.23, you guys know it, it's, it's classic. Uh, Romans road, step one or mile marker one on the Romans road. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So where does this nature come from? Where does it come from? You know, that, that passed down from Adam. Well, Romans chapter five, flip there with me. We're going to look at the first Adam versus the second Adam. We're just going to go through it very fast. Hopefully you get the gist of it just as we read it. 
Therefore, just as one man, now just so you know, Adam from Adam and Eve, he's known as the first Adam. But then the scriptures even call Jesus the second Adam, okay? He's, he's our second try at a righteous life, okay? Uh, Jesus was that, that second Adam, okay? So just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all sinned, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there's no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who'd not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who's a type of him to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense, many died, much more the grace of God and the, and the uh, gift by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which comes through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses uh, resulted in justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness. Uh, would I mess up? Did I read something wrong? Okay, I'm, my vision here, I thought I heard someone say, you totally, okay. Uh, verse 17, for if by the one man's offense, death reigned through the one, much more those who will receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many were made righteous. And then 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22 kind of say a similar thing. Since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ, all will be made alive. Okay. So as we look at Adam, especially us men, we feel the weight of responsibility because he's the one held accountable for being a lousy leader. Okay. He's the one uh, being held accountable for the sin. And it was through him that sin spread to all mankind. Okay. There's a responsibility there. And that responsibility causes us to depend on God's grace that we might not sin during the day. And so there's two types of people in the world. Men who are under Adam and men who are under Jesus. Races, tribes, tongues, creeds, male, female, whatever, none of that matters. What matters is, are you under Adam or are you under Jesus? If you're under Adam, then you receive sin. But if you're under Jesus, you receive sinlessness. If you're under Adam, you receive death. Under Jesus, life. Under Adam, condemnation, but under Jesus, justification. Just as if I never had sinned. Under Adam, you're unrighteous. Under Jesus, you're righteous. Under Adam, you're disobedient. Under Jesus, you're obedient. <clears throat> under Adam, you're born once, but under Jesus, you're born again. Under Adam, you'll go to hell, but under Jesus, you'll go to heaven. And so in Romans chapter 6, 23, we're told the wages of sin is death through Adam, but the verse doesn't end there. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. You know, Adam is our representative and he represented us well. Every one of us would have, have sinned like him, if not worse. Um, and so we have this natural tendency to sin now. 
Um, and so we've talked about our inherited sin in Adam. Now there's two other types of sin, imputed sin. Okay. Imputed sin. Uh, it's an accounting term. Uh, you know, if I give you a check, you will impute that check into your account. And so, uh, if you, and the imputing of sin didn't start until the Mosaic law. And then from that point on, every sin that you committed was, it was a check mark in that, in your account for sin. And that's why David says in, in uh, Psalms, and then it's quoted in Romans again, oh, how happy is the man to whom the Lord does not impute unrighteousness. Okay, check, check, check. Now, before the law, there was still sin, but it wasn't an imputation type, okay? Death still came through that sin and all that, but it wasn't until the law, it's imputed, okay? And so the beautiful thing is, as we'll see later, just as sin was imputed into our account through that man, Jesus righteousness is imputed into our account and the sin that was in our account is imputed into Jesus. We did a trade. He gave us his righteousness imputed into our account. Our sin was imputed into his account. He, second Corinthians tells us, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God through him. So we have an inherited sin through Adam. We have an imputed, uh, an imputed sin through breaking the law, uh, the law of Moses. And then we have personal sin. It's the day-to-day sin that we all do. You can read a list of that of Romans chapter one, so many different types of sins. It's not an exhaustive list. Galatians chapter five also has the works of the flesh. But, um, but because we have this sinful nature, uh, we, we have these personal sins as well. So the next question is, does my sin affect just me? Well, we can see from Romans 5 that Adam's sin didn't just affect him. It affected all mankind. We inherited that sin. But as you look at Joshua chapter 7, verse 19, we read of um, uh, the battle there at Ai and how Joshua, you know, they went to fight uh, against the... Um, uh, uh, Amalekites. They went to fight, uh, but because Achan and his family had stolen some possessions they weren't to have stolen from the enemy, they were losing the battle through a process of great Holy Spirit detective work. They trade the, they trace the stolen items clear down to Achan's household, and he had stolen a wedge of gold and a beautiful Babylonian garment, and he hid it under a rug on the floor of his tent. And that sin ended up costing him when he was finally found out and he confessed his sin, the, his family, his donkeys, his possessions, everything was stoned and a big pile of stone, stones up on top of his house on him and his kids and everybody. Everybody died because of his sin. It's a picture of how sin doesn't just affect us. It affects our kids, you know, uh, our, all of our sin that we do. It affects everybody in some way or another. There were 36 men that were killed before Achan confessed. And it was because of him that those 36 men died. Similar story when, you know, seven of Saul's sons were hung by the Gibeonites because Saul did a mass genocide against the Gibeonites. And years later, there was a famine in the land because of that. So seven of Saul's sons were hung. Okay. Saul didn't think about that. that His sin would affect his sons. Okay. Similar story in numbers with the, with Korah. You know, and Korah murmured against Moses and Aaron and led this rebellion and the ground opened up outside of Korah's tent and swallowed up Korah and his family and then 250 men were slain. Okay, Korah's sin didn't just affect him, it affected, it affected everybody. Just like our sin, it affects everybody. And that's a very sobering uh, reality there. Um, 
it doesn't just affect us. Uh, sin is destructive. It brings disorder. It brings death. And that's why God hates sin. It's so serious that he sent his only son to die so that we could be redeemed from our sin. Uh, you know, Proverbs chapter 7, verse 23, talks about the, this man that was tempted into sleeping. And, you know, it said that he didn't know that sleeping with this gal was going to lead to death. And that, that this sin had killed many mighty men. You know, and there's the old saying that sin will make you do what you never thought you'd do. It'll make you go where you never thought you'd go. It'll make you stay longer than you'd ever thought you'd stay. It'll make you pay a price that you never thought you'd pay. Uh, How bad is my sinful nature? Uh, The words total depravity are used. Total depravity, not total obscurity. But Romans chapter 3 verse 10 says, There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seek after God. They've all turned aside. Big old long section of scripture that just basically summed up. There's none righteous. We are totally uh, deprived. What does that mean? It means... You know, when we sin, we're still image bearers of God, but that mirror is cracked, it's distorted. Um, but all of our person is stained, it's marred, it's broken by our sin. Our mind is broken by sin. We're, we're depraved in the mind, and so we need to test things according to the word. Our emotions are depraved, and uh, our doubts, our feelings, you know, we gotta, we gotta question even our feelings, because we gotta stand on the word of God. Just to go quick, we're finishing up here. Um, what are some sinful views of sin? And I was so blessed listening to Mark Driscoll today that I'm stealing his sinful views of sin uh, and a couple other main points that just, man, as I heard, I was like, man, that's just good to think about. Sinful views of sin, nine sinful views of sin. Thinking that sin is just breaking some rules. You know, these rules or the law come from the character of God, the nature of God, his holiness, his purity, his righteous standards. And so breaking his nature, you know, we're breaking that and it ruins our relationship with him. So when we sin, we're not just breaking the rules like running by the swimming pool. You know, oh, is it really a big deal if I run by the swimming pool? No, we're, we're breaking God's nature. Okay, uh, number two, sinful views of sin that Jesus died for my sins, so I'm forgiven, and I don't need to take it seriously. You know, and Romans tells us that, you know, if we're really saved, we'll love Jesus and we'll hate sin. You know, if we're really saved, we'll hate sin, we'll be convicted of sin, we'll repent, we'll confess our sin. Uh, Third wrong view of sin, you're paranoid by sin, you're so paranoid by sin that you're afraid if you don't confess Every second, you know, that if you get in a car accident, you hadn't confessed that one sin or something that you're going to go to hell. That's just a paranoia, okay? You got to understand God's grace at the same time. You know, constantly be asking the Lord to search your heart, but don't be paranoid, you know? Um, like you're, you're losing your salvation or, you, or something like that. Um, number four, God knows my heart. And even though my life's bad, oh, he knows my heart. Uh, and even though I do these things and sleep with this girl and do, you know, he knows my heart that I'm really a good person, but the scriptures say that our life reflects our heart. And so if you're doing those sins, it's just a reflection of what's going on inside you uh, and that your heart is sinful and you need a savior. You need to repent of your sin. Sin is fun. So at the risk of not being dull, I'm going to sin. I'm going to sin to be a fun person. 
Um, again, the Holy Spirit can, will convict you, so you hate it if you're a believer. Uh, it's not a sin if no one gets hurt. As we studied with Korah, with Achan, you know, Saul, uh, everyone gets hurt in sin. No matter even the smallest sin, uh, even if it's just it changes the way you act, uh, then, then the people around you are being hurt by that. Uh, secret sin doesn't count. There's no secret sin. God knows it all, so it counts, okay? Let's just make that simple. Um, if it's popular or cultural, then it's not sin. We know from the beginning that culture was wicked, so uh, it, it's sin, okay? And cultures, whole cultures have been wiped out uh, because of that wickedness. And so don't go based on culture. Go what's based on the word. Uh, Christians make everything a sin issue when it's not, okay? We can't be, you know, we got to test things according to the word. There's new seasons in life or differences of opinion or conscience, conscience differences or denominational choices, you know, or whatever uh, transition phases. People go through things and we tend to think, oh, they're in sin. It's not sin. It's just a different phase of their life, okay? We got to know, test things according to the word, what's really sin. Cruising here. Uh, sinful responses to sin. We've got 10 of them. Number one, we minimize sin. We say it's not a big deal. You're overreacting. Leave me alone. It's a big enough deal that, that Jesus hung on the cross for it. Uh, big enough deal that people get diseases and die from it, plagues and wars and all of that. Uh, Number two, I'm the exception to the rule. Everybody thinks they're the exception to the rule. Um, you know, it's true for everybody else, but not for me. Got an email this week that said, I know this is wrong, but we're going to do it anyway. You know, and it's like, well, there's no exception to the rule. <laughs> so, <clears throat> might not know that song. Um, yeah, there's no exception to the rule. You know, uh, everyone thinks that they are that. Number three, blame shifting. You know, as someone is lovingly confronting a brother in the sin, then the brother turns around to them and says, I can't believe that you're confronting me on this. You know, you're obviously showing me that you don't respect me. And all of a sudden the blame is switched so that this person doesn't have to deal with their sin. It's the other guy's fault. And then the other guy's like, oh, I'm just a horrible person. I'm so sorry. I apologize, you know. And then that guy never has to deal with his sin through the blame shifting, okay? Also, those of us that I, you know, I'm guilty of this, being a hardcore mercy person and giving everybody the benefit of the doubt and thinking of everybody as the victim of something else, uh, you know, that's, that's not that, you know. Um, quit shifting blame and accusing other, th- uh, you know, you're a victim of your environment or whatever. Uh, number four, diversion is a sinful response to sin. Changing the subject, you know, changing the subject is a sinful response to sin. Uh, partial confession, only telling a little bit about what you did so that you don't have, you know, maybe we'll just, let's focus on that little thing that I did when uh, there's a whole lot more to the story. You know, it's, there's a, it's the tip of the iceberg when really the iceberg is under there. Like, just focus on the tip, you know. Oh, man, get it all out there. Confess, be healed, be cleansed. Um, worldly sorrow is a sinful response to sin. We're told in the scriptures, you know, there's this sorry that I got caught or sorry that people around me are hurting from this. And yeah, I'm going to even cry a little bit, but really I'm not, I don't have a godly sorrow that Corinthians tells us produces repentance, makes me want to change. Okay. Um, 
Worldly sorrow, it's a sinful response. Number seven, excuse making. I have a really good excuse for why I'm sinning. It's a really good story. Here, let me tell it to you. That's sinful response. Uh, Number eight, I'm a victim. I can't help it. You know, it's my genetics or my mom or my dad did this to me or even, you know, extreme things like I was molested. So now this is the way I am. Look, that guy sinned against you or whatever happened. Man, I'm not denying that, but you're responsible for your sin, okay? And you need to allow the Lord to cleanse you and work in you. You can't blame it on that, um, you know, or your financial situation. I'm poor, you know, or my culture made me do it. Or, you know, victims always victimize others. And so uh, don't play the victim card, okay? That's sinful response to your sin. Nine, mere confession without repentance, There's people that will totally agree, I am in sin. Yep, it's sin, it's sin, it's sin. I'm honest with you, I did this, I did that, but I'm not gonna change. That's a sinful, uh, or excuse me, that's a sinful response to sin. And finally, telling people they are good people and telling them to try harder, they'll do better next time. Uh, That's a sinful response to sin. They can't do better. They need to repent of their sin. They need to pray for the grace of the Holy Spirit. They need to walk in the Spirit that they might not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And then finally, uh, in Genesis 3, we saw God's responses to sin. Seven things. He judged sin. He judged sin. He said, here is your sin and here is your consequence. Okay. He gives grace and he pursues them. He communicated with them. He knew they'd sinned, but he followed after them and he conversed with them. He even made them garments, you know. Uh, He poured out grace upon them even after they'd sinned. He speaks to them. He teaches them about what they've done, like a father teaches his kids. He covers their shame. He sends them away so that they'll be delivered from sin and death. And he makes the promise that Jesus is coming. Uh, He says, there's someone that's coming. He's going to crush Satan. Um, And then finally, the good news, the good news about all of this, and it's found in the Romans road. You know, Romans road tells us that 323, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then chapter six, verse 23 tells us the wages of that sin is death. And it seems, man, that's black picture, man. I'm I'm a sinner. I'm going to die. And then 623 goes on to say, but the gift of God is eternal life. And then just flip with me. We're closing Romans five. Verse six, this is the uh, fourth part of the Romans road. For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely will a righteous man, uh, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man would someone even dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the light is shining now, you know, the beautiful gem over the black backdrop, the gem of the gospel. While we were sinners like Adam, Jesus died for us. And then the next beautiful part of the Romans road is in chapter 10, verse 13. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then in chapter 10, verse 9 through 11, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. So next week, we're gonna study 
uh, how God pursues us and saves us from our fallen state, saves us from our sin. But the black backdrop is that we are utterly depraved. We are uh, sinful inherently, and we are sinful imputatively, and we are sinful in our personal behaviors, and the outcome is eternal death and death in this world. But God, who is rich in mercy, died for us that we could be forgiven. And if tonight, if, if you're here tonight and you've never called upon the name of Jesus that you could be saved, do that tonight. Believe that he's the second Adam who was obedient. And through his obedience, his righteousness will be imputed into your account and your sin will be imputed into his account. On the cross, he bore all your sin and all your shame, but you need to give that over to him and receive him into your life as your Lord. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at this, 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 this is really the day of infamy, Lord. The fall in the garden, Lord, where, where it all went south, Lord, where all of, all of the pain, all of the suffering, all of the sick and perversion and pollution of this world began that day. But from day one, we worship you and praise you that you had a plan, that your son would come, he would live a sinless life, he would die on the cross and take our sin upon him, and in that death, he would crush Satan's head. And Lord, we're so thankful that you rose from the dead, and that just by simple faith in you and receiving that gift of salvation, we can be forgiven of our sin, cleansed from our sin. And Lord, we can walk in the power of the Holy Spirit that we might not sin anymore. We worship you and adore you for your plan throughout all eternity to save us from our sin. And Lord, even tonight, I pray just the sin that you've been convicting us of, that we would just wash it off of us, Lord, that we would allow you to take it and just... and. and and dispose of it, Lord. We repent, we turn away from it, we change our mind about it, we change our mind about how you feel about it, Lord. We don't want to lie to ourselves or have these sinful responses about sin. Lord, I just pray that you'd even open up opportunities, Lord. Let us seize the moment to just confess to one another that we might be healed as James tells us. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information about Calvary Chapel or to contribute to this ministry, you can go to our website, www.calvarycrookcounty.com, or you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. Thanks again for listening, and God bless.